Our Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we are a people who are in need of hearing the words of life. And so we pray now that as your word is opened and, and, and the sermon is given, that God, that you would speak to us. Uh, Lord, I pray, though, God, we, aren't, we are not people who just need to hear words. We pray that your Holy Spirit would prepare our hearts to receive this word. And that, God, that we would respond to you appropriately. We thank you so much, God, that you are so good. We thank you for all that we have done. And just help us this morning, Lord, to remember. Just to remember, God, what you have done for us. We thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen. So with Easter or Resurrection Sunday just a a month away, I thought it might be good if we would uh, take a short break from our series in Ephesians and instead look at the cross. Uh, recently, I've been reading a lot about the penal substitution of Christ. Now, that's just a, a very technical way of speaking of Jesus Christ being the substitute for his people by taking the penalty that was due for their sins. So you can see penal substitution. Christ is our substitute that has taken our penalty. And this isn't a doctrine that's uh, always talked about in a lot of places. As a matter of fact, in some circles, that this doctrine sort of fallen on hard times, especially uh, with secular writers. As you can imagine, the idea of Christ's sacrifice for sins is sort of outdated, you know, especially as some people see sort of a evolution of religion of being more of a bloodless uh, uh, theology, I guess, uh, more humane where You know, religion has just really become the practice of peace and goodwill to all that you hear in in so many circles. Uh, And we would expect that, I think, from secular culture. But even some self-professing Christians are becoming more uncomfortable with the idea of the atonement and the pain for sin. And I think part of that comes from the fact that it implies that God is a God of wrath and that he is a God of judgment. He is a just God. And for some people who would call themselves Christians, this idea just doesn't compute because their idea of it just doesn't fit their view of who God is. Because for some, especially in more liberal denominations, God is only a God of love. And the problem with that is, is that's not who God tells us he is in the Bible. That's a very truncated view of God and a very distorted view of God. God is so much more than that. And not only that, but also in some churches, you you, you hear less and less of sin being talked about. Now things are no longer sin. They're just struggles. You know, they're just issues. We as people in life just, I have struggles in life or I have, it's not an offense. It's not a sin against God. And so as you think about the whole idea of penal substitution, then the question becomes is, what's the penalty? And why do I need a substitute if there is no such thing as as sin? But brothers and sisters, as you read this, as you read the word of God, you see there is sin. There is sin. And even as you look out there in life and you go through your week, you know that there are sin. There are broken relationships. There is greed. There is abandonment. There is people using people. 
just to make more money or to get the things that they want. And, and at the root of this, you know, you might look at that and say, well, that relationship didn't work out. That's not what happened. It's because of sin. It's because of the selfishness of our own hearts that these things uh, fall apart. And so what I want us to do over the next four weeks as we approach the Easter season is to look at this whole idea of penal substitution. And so when we talk about how Jesus Christ has died on the cross for us, that we might understand more fully what it is that we're talking about. And so I want you to have your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to, to look at uh, this whole idea of Christ being our substitute. Now, before we look at this, I want us to talk about what is the Passover. Now, uh, as, as you look at that, you'll see that particularly in the first uh, 28 verses of this chapter. But there is a context in which this is given. And so I want to just sort of go over that a little bit for maybe those that may not be familiar. Pharaoh is the ruler of Egypt, and he has taken God's people into slavery and he won't let them go as God demands. God has sent his servants Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler of the world at that time. And, he's, and he demands that Pharaoh let God's people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I won't do that. And, and so God sends plagues on Egypt uh, to, one, to convince Pharaoh to let his people go, but also to confront the gods of Egypt. If you, if you go back and you look at the different plagues, you really see that they just sort of hit at the core of the different gods that the Egyptians worship. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we see that God is just about to give his last plague to Egypt. We see that in verses, uh, or chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. And this is what we read. So Moses said, thus saith Thus says the Lord, in other words, this is God speaking, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. And so God goes out and he kills all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, even including the animals. Now, why the animals? Well, you know, I don't know that we know for certain, but I would suggest it here again. It's because God is wanting to show, because the Egyptians worship animals and gods that were represented by animals. He wanted to show that those gods could not stop him. As a matter of fact, if you look down at verse 12, it talks about how God executes his judgment on the gods of Egypt. And God wanted to show publicly that the Egyptian gods were utterly powerless to protect them as God executed his judgments upon them. So this is clearly a divine statement to the Egyptians of who God is. And he even says in verse 12, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. But then if you look at verse 3 of chapter 12, you see that the Lord begins to instruct Moses about what the Israelites are to do, that is God's people, what they are to do in the preparation for this last plague. And he tells them to prepare a meal 
that is to be eaten during the plague, a meal that's become known as the Passover meal. But look at verse 3. He says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. So the Israelites were to select a lamb that would be just the right size for their household. And if the lamb was too large for their household, they were to, to get another household to come and to eat that lamb with them. And they weren't to have any leftovers, as you can see in verse 4. But if there were leftovers uh, till morning, then they were to, to burn that, to, to destroy it. But not only uh, were they to take a lamb, but it was to be a special lamb. A one-year-old, it was to be a lamb that was without spot, without blemish. You would look at this lamb and you'd say, this is a prize lamb. This is a perfect lamb. So you don't go out and just get the worst lamb you have because you're thinking, I don't want to kill my 4-H lamb. You know, you're supposed to take your best. And you, you take that and you sacrifice that lamb to the Lord. And... Uh, and anyway, it's just a worthy sacrifice to the Lord. But it's not simply the lamb itself that is significant, but also the blood of the lamb. If you look at Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, Leviticus 17, 11, we, we see several things about blood. Uh, first of all, we see that the life of a victim is in the blood. And that's why Israel was never allowed to eat a lamb who was strangled where the blood was not poured out. They were to see any time they killed an animal, they were to let out the blood. They were let it to spill on the ground because the life was in the blood. But also that, uh, that, that someone's sin could be atoned or paid for by the shedding of another's blood. This is what Leviticus says. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement, or that is payment, for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And that's why it's so important what uh, God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 12, verse 7. He says, then you shall take some of the blood. That is, when you kill this lamb, you're, you're, of course, to pour out that blood. And then he said, later, you'll take hyssop, which was like a branch, and you'll dip it in that blood. And you'll take the blood and you'll put it on the two doorposts, that is, on the sides of the entryway into the house, but also on the lentil of the house, which was the top part that went across. So all the way around the door frame, there would have been blood that would have covered that doorway. And, uh, and that was uh, by God's instruction. So then as God passes through Egypt and he is striking the firstborn of every household and every family dead, he sees the blood of the lamb that's been killed uh, for that household on the doorpost and God passes over that household. Verse 13, it says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay? But that blood was necessary, because one thing I want you to notice is that nowhere in this text does it say that the Israelites were exempt from God's judgment. Just because they were Israelites or because they were better than the Egyptians. No, the Israelites themselves, I want you to hear this, they also were under God's wrath, just like the Egyptians. The only reason, the only reason that God spared them 
was because the blood had been put on the doorposts of the house, which symbolically covered those within the house whose blood rightfully should have been shed for the penalty of their sins. So, uh, but instead, their sins were covered by the blood of a substitute. So, what is the Passover? But the Passover is simply God passing over someone as he gives out his judgment because a substitute has paid the penalty for the sins. So it's not that God has turned a blind eye to the sins even of his people, but he has just shown them that they need a substitute. And he wanted to drill into their minds this whole idea of the need of a substitute to die in their place. Now, why is that the case? Well, let's just think about what happens when you have no substitute. And that's sort of what you see in verses 29 through 32. When you have no substitute, very simply, you're not passed over, but rather you receive God's judgment. God's wrath comes to bear fully upon you. And that's what Exodus 12, verses 29 through 32 uh, really talks about. And you see in verse 29, God's judgment on sinners. It's very clear. As a matter of fact, not only is it clear, but it's, it's terrible. He says, and at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And it talks about even from the very lowest to the very highest in society, the Lord struck down the firstborn of Egypt as a divine act of judgment. And so uh, as he does so, though, Pharaoh finally begins to understand and, and to grieve uh, because of the penalty of God's judgment. And he sends the Israelites away. Look at verse 31. He said, Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you have said. Now, if you've grown up and you've read the rest of this story, whether it be in Sunday school or family worship or whatever it might be, you know that this is not like Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a very hard-hearted man. There were times when he said he was going to let God's people go, but he always changed his mind. But at this point, uh, he was ready to let the people go, and he said, let's go very quickly. You see, he finally realizes and sees himself as he is before a righteous God, and Pharaoh realizes that he is powerless to, to defend himself. And we know as we read the rest of the Bible that this judgment on Egypt is just really a preview of the judgment that's to come for all of us spiritually. Uh, God is a good God, and because of that, he will judge us all, every person who is ever born. Now, you might listen to that and you say, what? If God is good, then he's going to judge us. Why? What do you mean by that? But just think about this for a moment, if you would. Let's just imagine you're 76 years old. Some of us are closer to that than others. But let's just imagine you're 76 years old and you started driving when you were 16. So you've been driving for the last 60 years. And, you know, you've not been the best driver, you know. Your parents tried to teach you, but you just didn't listen. And so every day of those 60 years, you got a speeding ticket. Do you realize that if you got a speeding ticket every day, for the last 60 years, that would be almost 22,000 speeding tickets. Now, imagine that you went into court when you're 76 years old with a record like that, and uh, the, the, the police officer that issued the last ticket said, this is enough, you've got to go into court. So you're standing before the judge, 
and the judge looks at you and says, wow, 76 years old, 22,000 speeding tickets. Yeah, you know, I think I'm just going to let you go. Would that be a just judge? No, not at all. Now, we look at that and we think, yeah, but Rick, it's speeding tickets. You know, what's the big deal? Okay, let's change the analogy a little bit. Let's say the same thing happens. But instead of speeding tickets, you murdered someone every day for 60 years. That's 22,000 lives that you have taken. And if you stand before the judge and that judge says, I know that's horrendous and that's awful, but you are 76. I don't want to send you to prison for the rest of your life. I'm going to let you go. Would that judge be a just judge? Especially if 10 of his victims were your family members that you buried and you had 10 funerals. Would that be a just judge? Of course not. Now that's a human analogy, okay? But you can only imagine what it would be like in God's case. He is a holy and a perfect God who cannot tolerate sin. And so... If, if he were to just not give out judgment for sin, he would not be a just God. Well, Egypt was the most powerful em- empire at that time, and yet it could not protect itself from God's judgment. That is how great and awesome God's judgment is. And, and just think, there is nothing that will prevent God's judgment of us. Every one of us, the Bible says, will stand before God. As a matter of fact, it says in, in Hebrews, And just as is, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes what? Judgment. When we die, we close our eyelids in death. We will stand before God. As a matter of fact, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, while here upon this earth. And if we have no substitute, then what that means is is that we will incur the full wrath of God that is due for us for the sins that we have committed while we were here upon this earth. But then the question comes in, not just if you don't have a substitute, but what if you do have a substitute? What happens? Well, if you look at verses 33 through 42, it really answers that. And the answer is this, you will not be judged, but you will be passed over, much the same way that the Israelites did. And, and what we see as we look in these verses is that not only did God deliver his people from his judgment through the slain lamb, but we also see that he delivered them from bondage and slavery and he gave them freedom and blessings. You see, it says the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall be dead. They wanted to get rid of these people. And so God worked in such a way as to deliver his people from their bondage and from their slavery. And not only that, but the Lord said, this is what I want you to do. Before you leave Egypt, as they're kicking you out, I want you to go and I want you to ask your neighbor for, you know, their fine china, for their gold, for their silver, and everything. Just ask them for everything. And whatever you want, they're going to give to you. And so that's what the people did. And so they walked out. And as a matter of fact, it says in these verses, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And so God not only passed over those 
protected by the sign of the substitute, but he blessed them. He blessed them with freedom and with, in this case, with the Egyptians' gifts. And you see, what God was doing is, is he was using this whole scenario uh, in Exodus 12 as a stage to show the world something of his great power as he brought his people out of slavery. As a matter of fact, through the rest of the Bible, up until the time where we come to Calvary, where Christ died upon the cross, this was seen as the defining moment of God redeeming his people. This was to show the greatness of God and his mercy in what he did for his people. But then on Calvary, we read that Jesus Christ, who now becomes the Passover lamb. As a matter of fact, Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so you see now the new act of redemption is Christ on the cross. And brothers and sisters, I pray that you understand something of the greatness of being delivered from the service of sin and slavery. Do you? To be freed from God's just charge against you, So let us no longer live as those who have not been delivered, but let us marvel at the salvation that God has given to us. As Christians, we celebrate our deliverance by God, not by ourselves. We did not save ourselves, but it came through a substitute. And so we can't pat ourselves on the back as religious people as we look at our neighbors who are godless or our co-workers who don't know Christ and they're out there committing all kinds of sin. We cannot stand there and pat ourselves on the back as if we have some righteousness of our own. Because our righteousness has only come through the substitute of the Lord Jesus Christ, which humbles us. And rather, let us have delight And even a little surprise that God has seen fit to save us. We should always be surprised to think, Lord, why? Why would you set your love and affection upon us? So let us rejoice in what the Lord has done. You and I need that deliverance from bondage to sin and from the fatal judgment of God. And that deliverance will only come through the blood of the firstborn lamb of God without blemish. And that's how Peter describes Jesus Christ. Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And just as the Passover lamb was a substitute for sinners, so too is Jesus Christ, the lamb of God. You see, all this that was done for Israel uh, and, and us would. Uh, would be so that we could understand that we have been saved by a substitute. And so God gives Moses instructions in verses 14 through 20 and even 43 through 51 about the Feast of Unleavened Bread by which the Israelites were to remember the results of the substitute each time they took the Passover meal. So each time they had that meal, they were reminded God's judgment has passed over us because of the Lamb. They took the meal again. God's judgment has passed over us because of the lamb. They took the meal again. God's judgment has passed over us because of the lamb. And he says, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. Because we must never forget this. 
So throughout the Bible, we see that while the Israelites were just as subject to God's wrath and as the judgment upon the Egyptians, it was the lamb that was substitute that paid that price. And Jesus Christ brings this reality uh, of the Old Testament picture of the Passover home to bear upon us as we see how he took the Passover meal and he made it his last supper with his disciples while here upon this earth. And that's no coincidence. Just as the Passover meal was to remind God's people of God's wrath being satisfied by the shedding of the blood of a substitute, so the Lord's Supper does the same thing. The very thing that we are doing this morning reminds us of what Christ has done for us. And in remembering what God has done for us, we come to believe in what he has promised of what he will do for us. And so there's a sense that as we come to the table this morning, that we not only remember backwards, but we also look forward to the promise that he will give us that one day we will be with him in heaven forever with our brothers and sisters. And we will sit down at the... At the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will eat with him. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we not only remember God's deliverance in Christ, but we also pass the gospel message down to the next generation. Look at verses 26 through 28. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, is it the sacrifice... Uh, it, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Brothers and sisters, as you come to the Lord's Supper this morning, do your children see you take this supper as something that is significant in your life? Is this something that you talk about as you go home? Is this something where they come to realize that this is a testimony of God's deliverance of his people? And do we bring that gospel to bear upon our children to help us to see and to understand? My friends, if you are not a Christian, God is calling you to trust in him. To believe that one has been sacrificed to pay the penalty for your sins and to take that burden off of you. That's the message of the Passover. That's the message of the Lord's Supper this morning. The Lord God made us all in his image and yet we have rebelled against him and we have sinned against him. And therefore we need his forgiveness. We need him to cover our sins but God, in his great love, caused this punishment to fall upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people mistakenly think that the father somehow twisted the arm of the son to come and to be a substitute. But that's not the case. The son gladly came to do the will of his father. He said, Father, I would love to come and to purchase a people for you. And he did. And he gave his life. So Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb sacrificed for all who will be his people. The lamb without defect became our substitutionary sacrifice if we will repent and believe. But you know, some people hear that and they say, you know, I don't need a substitute. I, I can get everything I need from reading my Bible, 
you know, from my own inner sense of right and wrong and from, you know, doing some other reading and just watching other people. You know, I think I can make it. But friends, the point of the Christian good news is is not so small a thing as to give us what we think we need or what we want. Do you know how some people get religious because they kind of want to use God to have a little more peace in their life or, or they want to have a, a certain sense of forgiveness? Maybe they have a guilty conscience and they just want some relief from that guilt or they want a little bit of order in their life or they just want a sort of a little bit of a pick-me-up. And so they'll come and they'll say, well, that's Christianity, but that's not Christianity. If that's how you think of Christianity, then you're mistaken. There is much better news out there than that. God has, God has come not to provide what you want or you think you need, that little bit of peace or order or, or even hope. No, God has come to, to meet a much deeper need, much more profound need than you may have even known. I appreciate how J.I. Packer talks about this. He talks about man-centered gospel versus God-centered gospel. And he says, without realizing it, we have, during the past century, bartered that gospel, that is the biblical gospel, for a substitute product. He said, though it looks similar enough in points of detail, is as a whole and decidedly, it's a different thing. Hence, our troubles. For the substitute product, doesn't answer the ends for which the authentic gospel has in past days proven itself so mightily. The new gospel conspicuously fails to produce deep reverence and deep humility and a spirit of worship, a concern for the church. Now, why is that? They said, well, we would suggest that the reason lies in its own character and content it fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts and God-fearing in their hearts because this is not primarily what it's trying to do. One way of the difference between it and the old gospel is to say that it is too exclusively concerned to be helpful to men. That's what the new gospel is. And there are many churches out there that are preaching this gospel that if you come to Jesus Christ, he's going to make your life better. He's going to make your life easier. He's going to do all these things for you. And so we want to come because we want peace and we want comfort and we want happiness and we want satisfaction. And there's too little concern to glorify God. But the biblical gospel, the old gospel, is helpful too, but more so for its first concern is always to give glory to God. It was always and essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty and mercy and judgment, a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for good, both in nature and God. Its center of reference is unambiguously God himself. But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. Whereas the chief aim of the old was to teach men to worship God, the concern of the new seems limited to making them feel better. And so God calls us to come to him and to trust in him, that we might know him, that we might live to glorify him. And here in Exodus 12, we are inter introduced to that old gospel, that biblical gospel, the good news that God would deliver us, not because of anything that we have done, 
but because, uh, or because of anything that we are, but solely because of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for him, that we might then live a new life to bring glory and praise and honor to his name. Amen? Oh, God is so good. Brothers and sisters, let us, let us think about that as we prepare to come to the table this morning. Please bow your heads with me if you would.